Hello. I'm recording this in uh, December 2022, but you'll be hearing it in January 2023 uh, when the first instalment of what I hope will become at least a semi-regular series of DEN discussions begins. I've been wanting to do something a bit different with my Substack for a while, so I thought I would uh, join uh, or rejoin the podcasting community. I used to host a little podcast for a university society back when I was at Edinburgh University, and I quite enjoyed it, though it was a very amateurish, as no doubt this will be, attempt. Uh, Basically then, I'm going to be doing some uh, discussions with people that I find interesting uh, on what I think are interesting subjects. And going forward, uh, these discussions will probably take the place of some of my readings from books and essays and poems. Um, Though those will not disappear, I hope to continue doing those as well, uh, if not as regularly, given this new feature of my substack. Um, but these discussions, as I said, I mean, I'm not a podcaster or a sound recordist or sound recording artist of, of any kind. Uh, they might, so these discussions, they might not be regular. They might not be predictable when, you know, in terms of when they appear, let alone in their scope. Uh, but I do hope that they become a significant part of this little substack of mine. So... In December 2022, as I record this, uh, I also recorded a little conversation to kick off this this new series. Uh, And we'll see see what comes of this series. But anyway, this first discussion is with somebody I thought who couldn't be bettered as an inaugural victim of this this format. Uh, Matt Johnson, who I'm proud to call a friend. He is a writer and he is the author of a forthcoming book about Christopher Hitchens. And this book is the subject of our conversation, which follows this rambling little introduction of mine. So, I hope you enjoy uh, the following discussion and I hope that this this format becomes uh, something of a mainstay on this substack. Um... As I said, I can't promise to be able to do this regularly, but I do hope to to do quite a lot more of these. And, uh, well, enough rambling, Daniel. Uh, it's time to begin. So please do enjoy and uh, send me your opinions if you have any. But please enjoy, enjoy. Thank you. Well, hello there. You are listening to an episode of Den Discussions, in which I, Daniel James Sharp, converse with people I find interesting, and who would answer my email, on subjects that I also find interesting. These conversations are posted semi-regularly on my substack, Daniel's Den, on which, among other things, I also write and to which, of course, I heartily recommend you subscribe. Anyway, on to today's discussion. Uh, 
let us begin. Hello, my guest today is Matt Johnson. Matt is a writer who has published in various outlets, including ARIO Magazine, Quillette and The Bulwark. And he's the author of the forthcoming book, How Hitchens Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment, which is to be published next month. And this book is the topic of our discussion today. So I thought by way of preface, I would uh, relate my story about how we first got in touch or first met each other. So a few years ago, I was... Uh, when I was still a student at Edinburgh University, I was on the website of the library. And I don't think I was looking up anything to do with Hitchens, as it happens, though I, I may have been, but I, uh, as memory serves, I wasn't. So this was really pure coincidence. Um, I was searching something up and in the results appeared this dissertation by Matt uh, called Why uh, A Power of Facing, Why Hitchens Matters. Uh, and it was a. Uh, I thought that it looked quite interesting, so I opened it and read it, and I thought, ah, okay, interesting. I want to, I want to get in touch with this guy, and eventually, I think we first made contact, or rather, I first made contact with you on LinkedIn, and uh, we we spoke about your dissertation, and uh, and and that's how this wonderful relationship between us began well, I would like to say that's that's the origin story of this little discussion it's very romantic <laughs> so thanks for talking to me anyway and I suppose that uh, that little story uh, leads into my first question which is uh, t- tell us a little bit about yourself about your life and work and education uh, you know and uh, in particular you know your uh, interest in Hitchens, which obviously goes back a little bit back to your university days. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me, Daniel. I appreciate it. First of all, uh, it was kind of alarming to me when you reached out about the thesis because I I wasn't aware that it was accessible on some database across the pond. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sure I knew on some level, but I, I just thought it was so obscure that there was no way people were actually reading it. So when you, when you when you contacted me, that was my first thought, like, oh, God, I mean, how many people have actually seen this thing? Um, I, I would recommend that potential readers uh, get the book instead of searching out the thesis. But hey, you know, do what you want. Um, so I have I have been interested in Hitchens for a long time since early in my undergraduate years. And um, it was just sort of a back of the mind interest for the first four or five years. You know, I, I read several of his books and I, I watched the endless uh, profusion of YouTube content, which just seemed to balloon by about a thousand videos a day for a very long time. And uh, then when I was getting my master's in journalism at KU, um, the University of Kansas, uh, my thesis advisor suggested writing about Hitchens because we had just had a conversation about it. And I was like, what, I, I can actually do that? I mean, I had no idea that they would actually allow me to just sort of write this pro-Hitchens polemic. So it was it was a real treat to be able to write about him. And then, you know, when I got finished with it, I started seriously considering uh, the possibility of writing a book. And so that's the uh, that's the finished product that we are now discussing. But anyway, um, I'm an independent writer. I write for Quillette and Haaretz and The Bulwark and a bunch of other places. 
And I actually spent a couple of years as an opinion page editor in Topeka, Kansas, which is the capital of Kansas. And that might sound boring, but I can tell you that Kansas politics at the time when I was at the paper was quite ferocious and interesting. Just look up Sam Brownback and his tax experiment, and you will see that uh, it had implications for our national discussion about tax policy in the United States. So that was a lot of fun, actually working at a daily paper for a while. But uh, I ended up leaving there because papers downsize and trying to work in traditional journalism today is a total crapshoot. And I've just been writing independently for a few years, which has afforded me the opportunity to do stuff like write books about Hitchens. So anyway, that's that's the summary. Well, I mean, I know, and uh, I would also second your recommendation to go to the book first. Uh, I don't think anyone was actually going to try to find the thesis <laughs> for the record, but it is it is funny because I when you sent me the message, I pulled it back up and I was like, yeah, I, I don't think it was uh, I don't think it was quite publishable at that point. You know, it was just it was kind of like taking a series of Hitchens's critics like Seymour and Glenn Greenwald and Chris Hedges and then just kind of like attacking them for three pages a piece and then <laughs> this just went on for 140 pages. I think I think you I think you um undervalue it slightly I mean I was sufficiently impressed to come and seek you out quite you know I couldn't really find where you were but eventually I found you on LinkedIn and I think I made an account on LinkedIn just to get in touch with you so. Hey well if it impressed you man that's uh that's all I need to hear. Well, exactly. hopefully all your all your audience needs to hear <laughs> no, but I, I mean I would recommend looking it out anyway uh, it's still an interesting piece um, I did want to ask about how that uh, and I, I don't mean to go on about that thesis uh, but uh, you know how, how does that how did that uh, you know between 2015 2014 when you wrote that and and now when you've got this book coming out you know how did your views and perspectives on Hitchens change if they did uh you know how, or, you know t- tell us how, how that intervening time uh uh you know informed or changed or altered your your views uh uh sorry I'm just I'm just going on please please sure, sure. no that interrupting me when I'm rambling <laughs> no I'm glad I'm glad you asked um that's that's an interesting way to approach it actually uh because when i wrote the thesis um the the paris attacks had just happened the charlie hebdo attack had just happened um i was i was more focused on hitchens's arguments surrounding religion islam totalitarianism more generally um the syrian civil war was had just been raging for a few years at that point so it it was it was a different set of arguments I was making at the time. I was sort of talking about Hitchens' generic anti-totalitarianism and um, his, his, how that tied into his position on religion, you know, and that was stuff. I, I feel like you can get a lot of that from Hitchens' work itself. I, I feel like the, the new um, book or the book, since there's only one, uh, is, is focused on Hitchens' essential liberalism. That's the basic theme of the book. And I think that's become much more relevant over the past few years. And um, it's an interesting transition in Hitchens' life because he remained radical on many fronts until the end of his life. Um, he, he just didn't call himself a socialist anymore. He stopped calling himself a socialist around the turn of the century. Um, but he was still a very serious internationalist. He still believed that we should construct an international system that can protect human rights as broadly 
as possible um, that, that can facilitate economic growth for as many people as possible. Um, you know, things like globalization, which are now dec decried as these neoliberal um, toxic, you know, features of the global system. Like Hitchens, Hitchens regarded as essentially progressive. He thought integration was a good thing in and of itself. And these are arguments that can still be made today, but they can be made within a framework of existing institutions that just need to be refined and improved. I mean, for example, he was always a very serious Europeanist, and he always supported the European Union, even though he had his criticisms of the monetary union. And I know a lot of people on the left and some people on the right uh, despise these supranational entities like the European Union as anti-democratic, as too bureaucratic, as beholden to the interests of international finance and, and you know, bad actors all around. And I just think that's a huge mistake because I think it's the, the, the core of the European project is essentially democratic. It's essentially progressive. And there are so many issues like that one, like the issue of European integration, about which Hitchens was just so fundamentally liberal. And I think the term liberalism, which Hitchens actually scorned um, for most of his career as this, you know, weak need, spineless sort of sellout, political sellout needs to be revived and needs to be treated with the respect it deserves. I think Hitchens was actually coming around to that point. He stopped using the word liberal in scare quotes near the end of his life. And I think he, he only would have firmed up uh, that conviction when, when Trump emerged and when uh, Brexit happened and when authoritarianism swept across Europe and, you know, with the solidification of Chinese totalitarianism and then with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I, I just... I think he's become much more relevant and I, and liberal the the framework of liberalism and its growth and development is um the best one to apply to to his career arc. So that's that's it's a big difference from the um thesis which it just wasn't really a theme of the thesis. Mm. Liberalism per se. I mean those are all um important points. I mean there is this view that you know, um, <clears throat> those ideals of liberalism, they're kind of toothless, they're soft, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that they're, they're not radical, um, that you have the EU and it's just a sort of capitalist uh, organisation and so on and so forth. Um, and yeah, I think Hitchens did believe that those ideas were radical and uh you know those ideas of liberalism were radical and i think i think it's greg lukianov's term is that free speech is the eternally radical idea and i mm -hmm. think that will apply to to most of these or all of these liberal ideals but i think that i think you're right that for most of his career he scorned he scorned that term that liberal or liberalism um but as as you'll no doubt be aware, you know, back in his first essay collection before the Berlin Wall fell, uh, you know, he wrote in the foreword to it in 1988 uh, something along the lines of, you know, these ideals of of democracy and secularism and internationalism and solidarity, you know, these, you know, these, however much they're decried as fashionable, uh, these are the ideals that stand. You know, ever in need of of defending. So even even 
long before he, you know, formally or officially abandoned uh, the label of socialist, uh, he, he, you know, understood that those ideals were the ideals worth fighting for. Those were the kind of undergirding principles of of uh, everything he wrote. Uh, yeah. Do you think? Do you think then, based on that, that there is this kind of symmetry or continuity through his career and writings that whether he was supporting the Iraq War uh, or uh, you know proclaiming the the the, the coming tide of socialism. Uh, that there was a there was a commonality a thread through all of this yeah uh, definitely and I'm glad you put it like that because I I didn't mean to make it sound like he had some um, come to Jesus moment after the cold war ended and suddenly became a liberal you know he, he for one thing he viewed many of the most prominent um, socialist intellectuals as great liberals I mean Orwell um clr james byard rustin um in these these were these were people who were his kind of left wingers you know but they were also fundamentally liberal and i i do think that when you look at his response to the fatwa against rushdie and when you look look at the debates he participated in about socialism in the 80s where he insisted on the importance of universalism and of of liberal principles um it's clear that this was always a major theme of his work and a major feature of how he thought about the world. And the, the difference is that I, I just think he, he had a lot of, he had a lot of contempt for people who would express support for a generic liberalism um, until very late in his career. And I, there's an, there's an essay that you can find in for the sake of argument, which is um, a great collection of essays that came out in the early nineties, I believe. And he, he's talking about the neoconservatives who were declaring victory over communism. And they, you know, they, they presented themselves as these great foes of totalitarianism. And he argued that this was so self-regard, or self-regarding and, and grandiose and over the top. And he was so critical of the people who presented the Soviet Union as a dire totalitarian threat. But he agreed with them. <laughs> I mean, he agreed that the Soviet Union was a, a totalitarian hellhole so it's just it's just strange that he he was willing to separate those two hemispheres so clearly and for so long and i mean one thing i take him to task for in the book is his criticism of fukuyama and the end of history and i find it especially strange for a guy like hitchens who was a marxist for a good chunk of his well all of his adult life and most of his journalistic career um and that he was so critical of a theory that was informed by Hegelianism and a form of Hegelianism that actually had more real world backing than Marxism could ever claim. I mean, Fukuyama's thesis is still in play. Uh, it's still conceivable that liberal democracy um, and market-based economies comprise the, the most sustainable long-term uh, political and economic systems for humanity like that 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 thesis is still reasonable and so i he was he was always so critical of fukuyama and i think he said something after um the end of history came out he said at last self-congratulation raised uh to the status of philosophy or something i think he would have had to admit that he was at least partially wrong about fukuyama at some point he definitely never did make that acknowledgement at least not to my knowledge and he would occasionally um, credit Fukuyama with making good points about the desire for recognition and how fundamental 
it is to um, human life and to you know human striving and political development. But I, I do think that he he was just sort of wrong on that one, and uh, and Fukuyama was sort of right. I'm sorry to s- simplify it think, like that. I mean, I feel like I should know, but do you know if if Hitchens and Fukuyama ever had a public debate or conversation? Uh, I, I, should, I should be able to answer that question, but uh, I hold my hands up. I, I'm not able to. I think you may know. I think they were. I think they were possibly on a panel together at some point. I know that there's an interview of Fukuyama with Fukuyama on C-SPAN where the host mentions Hitchens' criticism and Fukuyama just says something like, well, he needs to read the book first. It's a very dismissive (laughs) response, but I actually think the criticism from Hitchens was unfair and I think Fukuyama's response was reasonable. So anyway, I mean, I I have Fukuyama on the brain at the moment because I just wrote a long piece about him for Quillette. And um, it's, it's, it really is like his, his thesis is very consistent with my thesis in many ways. I mean, I just, I just think that uh, Hitchens sought to vindicate liberal democracy uh, by the end of his life. And that, that was like, that was main, that was his main political crusade. You know, that's why he supported the Iraq war. That's why he thought um, it was important to, you know, arrest the spread of uh, Russian chauvinism and imperialism. I mean, this, it, it was the through line. And it, it might seem simple, but like as he as he was at pains to explain, like it's not it's not it's not something that everybody accepts. Liberal democracy is under threat. You know, there there was a time probably ten or fifteen years ago where I wouldn't have made that argument so um, so forthrightly, but I think it's hard to deny now. You know, and I he was, he was sort of ahead of that curve. I mean, just to you know. Just to talk about specifics, I mean, I remember vividly when Matt Iglesias posted some tweet about how Hitchens would have been a Trump supporter, you know, because Trump is critical of Islam and because Hitchens was such a contrarian. And I can't speak for Hitchens and I'm not claiming to, but I don't think we have any reason to believe he would have been a supporter of Trump. I mean, he was very clear on what he thought about the Tea Party movement and Palin and a lot of the forebears, the populist forebears to Trumpism. He despised them. He, he would have hated uh, Trump's isolationism. He would have hated his authoritarianism, his attacks on free speech. I mean, I could just go down the list ad nauseum. And I just think to, to make that argument about Hitchens uh, betrays a really, a really sort of um, half-hearted um, engage, level of engagement with his work. Well, Matt Iglesias should have read the book. <laughs> he should have read the book, yeah. No. Well, I, th- I mean, I think... Um... And I think it'd be fascinating to see, uh, you know, a conversation between Fukuyama and Hitchens today. Yeah, I think yeah, it would. they would be pretty much um, bosom buddies. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that, man. I just, yeah, but I, mean, I think I feel it. I think a lot of the arguments that Fukuyama makes about Ukraine and Russia, absolutely, yeah. are, you know, things that Hitchens would, you know, just wholeheartedly agree with. So it'd be, it'd be interesting to see the discussion between them. Yeah, it's just, I mean, just actually coming right out with it and, mm-hmm. and saying that Hitchens would be a, a big Fukuyamian seems like a stretch. It's, well, it's just, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't quite say that. I said he would agree with Fukuyama's stance on Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to impute that to you. I, I'm just saying, I, I'm, I'm speaking for myself here. I, I, I know that there are a lot of people, Hitchens... Um, that sort of like worked with Hitchens when he was younger and that read Hitchens when he was a socialist and, 
you know, followed the arc of his career. And I, I can guarantee you, if they hear me talking about Hitchens and Fukuyama in the same breath, they'll say the same thing about me that I just said about Matt Iglesias, you know, that I'm so out to lunch and I can't possibly think that. And it's possible that Hitchens is sort of, because Hitchens is pretty, he, he was usually pretty stubborn. I mean, I, I, if Hitchens criticized somebody at such a high level and so relentlessly for so long, I sort of doubt he would have just sort of come around to him publicly, even if he was effectively making similar arguments to Fukuyama, you know? So it's, I, I do kind of, I kind of find it, hard to believe that they they would have been on good terms or whatever but anyway I, I just don't I just don't want to speak for him and I just think I just think it's a curious omission by him uh that he was so hard on on that argument and I do think he fundamentally misunderstood it in some ways because he would he would claim that you know we only had a few days of this blissful end of history period before Slobodan Milosevic you know invaded Bosnia and before Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and that's just that that in and of itself demonstrates such a fundamental misunderstanding of the argument. I mean, Fukuyama is like a few paragraphs in when he says, I'm not saying that there won't be events to fill the pages of foreign affairs as yearly summaries of, you know, wars and uh, political instability and what have you. I I don't want to engage in, you know, psychoanalysis here, but perhaps that was a, a result of, you know, even, even if he fundamentally agreed with, with you know Fukuyama's um, fundamental point, you know, but he he didn't want to admit it in a sense. You know, yeah, I think I think there was some of that. I mean, I, um, you know, abandon what or, or or to what to his mind may have been to abandon uh, certain radical ideals. Well, I do think he had sort of a tragic view of history in many ways. And I think he, he overstated the threat of, of jihadism in many ways. I mean, I I hate to say it because I think he was so right about political Islam and about jihadism. And I know that these are ideas and ideas can manifest themselves in horrific ways very quickly. I mean, if a, if a dirty bomb went off in New York, I probably wouldn't be making this argument right now. And, you know, if it could be traced to some jihadist organization, but it, it was, when you look at the world now and you look at, Putinism and the invasion of Ukraine, and you look at Chinese totalitarianism, it, it's hard It's hard to credit the claim that Islamic fundamentalism, while it does lead to a massive amount of suffering, and that's something I think that some of the people who make the arguments I'm making now about like the number of people who die in terrorist attacks, blah, 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 that I, don't, I do think they overlook just the sheer amount of suffering that's inflicted by Islam. I mean, fundamental Islam around the world. I mean, you just have to look at how it's you know, certain dogmas have arrested development in Middle Eastern countries for decade upon decade. And you and just how difficult it is to publish certain books or say certain things in that part of the world to understand that this is just look at the women of Iran in the streets today. I mean, it, it obviously has a massive human toll. But in terms of its threat to the West, I mean, it, I, it just I think it's been outranked and outstripped by these other threats. Um, in, in more recent years. But I, I think his the main point I'm trying to make here is just that Hitchens sort of saw that the very, very ugly side of history could reveal itself very quickly, or the ugly side of human nature. And he would he did say fascism with an Islamic face, and he very frequently compared jihadists to, to fascists, which I think is actually a pretty fair comparison. Um, but you know, I, I can't see him sort of signing on to the Steven Pinker style view that the world is 
getting better, not necessarily inexorably and not permanently. And we can always have relapses, but getting better. I think he would just question that. And, and I think he would have a more tragic view. And Fukuyama is pretty op- optimistic too. I mean, if you actually read his political order series and the end of history, like he is making an argument for, for progress and the relentless forces that push progress along. So again, I, I just, I just want to be very careful because I do think I identified these themes in Hitchens's work. And I, I usually present like his co- comments about Fukuyama as these strange aberrations that pulled him away from the core themes that, that were informing his work, you know, but I just don't, do not want to speak for him. That's all. Uh, so now moving on to the uh, seance that we planned to summon the uh, spirit of Hitchens to find out his opinions today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All you have to do is go to youtube.com <laughs> or, or read one of the uh, dozen, dozen books, dozen plus books. Yeah, that's another risk of writing a book about Hitchens, by the way, um, which you're, you're probably encountering yourself these days. Um, that it, he wrote so much and so well yeah. that writing about him is, <laughs> it seems like a poor substitute in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm making the case against buying my book, but yeah, I mean, like he, he just, he's a better writer than I am. And if you want to know what he thinks, he did make it very clear. It's just that there, I mean, this is part of the fun of like looking at things with a decade of remove from them. It's just that there were, there were things coming out of his work. And I really think despite what, Uh, many of his critics say, I think he was sort of hitting his stride as a writer and a thinker in his last 10 years, you know, arguably is one of his best collections of essays, in my opinion. It's really beautifully written. And it's these these themes about liberal democracy and and free expression, and just like his idiosyncratic interests and his literary ability, like all that is just, just shining through in that collection. It was the last one that was published while he was still alive. And I just think that's tragic. So I, I am kind of trying to like carry the conversation forward with this book and say, maybe, maybe these are some directions he might've gone in. This is why what he was saying in those last 10 years, I mean, really throughout his whole career, but really after the cold war and in his last 10 years, um, why all that stuff's so relevant now and becoming more so all the time, mm-hmm. especially for the left. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I really sign on to the, to the point about uh, it's you know sometimes when you read, I mean I mean I have this experience whenever I read uh, any great writer, I'm like oh god I despair like how can I ever oh yeah yeah ever, sure. uh, you know even even come near to this standard, um, and yeah reading Hitchens is is one of those experiences. Yeah, me. it's it can be pretty brutal. Hitchens always said that you should read people who make you wonder why you do it and, you know, make you want to throw up your hands and say, I'm really not worthy to pick up the pen or sit down at the keyboard, whatever it may be. And I really do think, I mean, yeah, his, his prose style will will never be matched. And I I really do hope people, I hope some people will pick up the book and go back to his over and actually check out what he had to say, you know, from his own because you really do want to read Hitchens on Hitchens. That's that's the best form of Hitchens there is at the end of the day. So anyway, yeah, it's it's a uh, it can be tough. I think um, and maybe maybe this is a you know a, a disease of all writers is is that they constantly compare themselves to to others. Because uh, I, I mean Hitchens, I think he was someday on some show compared him to Orwell, and he said no, no Orwell. For one thing, was a much better writer than I am, 
uh, which uh, is something I sympathise with, and I think any writer can sympathise with, is when you compare yourself to to somebody that you highly regard, you're just, you know, you're just, you just uh, kind of put yourself down, essentially, and say, yeah. I can achieve that level. They're such different writers, Orwell and Hitchens. Oh, yeah, very different, yeah. It's interesting. Orwell didn't seem to inform Hitchens's style all that much. I mean, I think some of, some of what people say about Orwell's style is actually overblown. You know, I mean, they always cite Orwell about Orwell, and they say good, good prose should be like a window pane blah 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 but he was you know it's it's not like it's not like or orwell was a very assiduous follower of his own rules like the, like in and in, in his uh instructions on writing you know like he, he breaks some of his own rules in like when he's listing the rules in, in that essay which i find kind of funny but yeah i mean I, his, his final rule in that essay is to break all of these rules before you say anything like what how does he put it exactly well, I can't remember the exact before, before you say anything ghastly or something. I can't remember exactly what it is, but <laughs> yeah, definitely. Hitchens is, I mean, it can be very, very thick with illusion. Um, it can be a little too flowery from time to time, but at the end of the day, it's it's just brilliant. And it and what's nice about that, like Hitchens' eloquence on the page, is that sometimes when he when he's vulgar, you know, when when he'll just when he'll just say fuck off, or he'll he'll just use like a a, a typical um sort of like common word in the middle of this like really lovely banquet of writing like it's just it's just it's always more striking like it always like he's you know he's good at he's good at strategically using these contrasts and he would use them on on the stage to really great effect uh from time to time like there was some there was some video called hitchens on the meaning of life on uh, youtube and it had been clipped out of his a debate with Frank Turek and he said something like, like the guy said well if you don't believe in, in God you know then what gets you out of bed in the morning like what gives life meaning and Hitchens just goes on this five minute tangent about how it's mainly crowing over the miseries of other people it's like yeah mainly just like and he's like it's just this hilarious like completely because it's just one of those questions that you don't answer you don't even have to answer um honestly or or honestly is not the right word you don't have to take it seriously and somebody says well, what gives your life meaning without god you know if you have to ask then you you will never know so it's better to just rip the guy and it's i mean i just recommend people look up the debate and, and listen to, to what he said and they said something like irony irony is the gin and the campari or something like so he's just it's, it's a very hitchensian sort of answer to a very stupid question and that's the sort of thing, like the off-the-cuff wit, you know, which is just irreplaceable. I mean, I, I don't think anyone does it as well. Mm. Yeah. To go back to a, uh, another point that you brought up then, um, you said that one of uh, Hitchens could be very, very stubborn, uh, as in DT could. Um, and I think that's possibly one of the well, not possibly, it is one of the criticisms that one could very well make of him, and that I would make of him, is that in some cases he was far too, as much as he was, you know, a great debater, a great writer, an engager with different ideas, he could also be incredibly dogmatic. Um, and the example that comes to mind is that he never quite let go 
of the argument that, uh, you know, the uh, weapons of mass destruction argument over Iraq. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that he s- still tried to justify long after it had become uh, pretty much untenable. Well, also, incredibly, he would criticize the Bush administration for, as he put it, preferring to scare people uh, rather than reason with them or enlighten them. Well, that's just exactly what he did for a long time. And he used to say that the only way you could certify that Saddam Hussein was actually disarmed was to invade and to check it out yourself, which just makes a mockery of the entire inspections regime. And it means that argument was always moot in his mind. Yeah, there, I mean, his early arguments for the Iraq war, the ones that didn't have to do with uh, human rights and with the essential instability and horror of the Saddam Hussein regime, they were pretty poor. I mean, his insistence on terrorist connections that were either extremely tenuous or absolutely didn't exist. You know, that, that sort of thing was, it, it's frustrating. And he, and he really didn't walk any of that back, uh, at least to the extent that you would have wanted him to. Not really much at all, actually. I mean, because you no, could have said, and lots of, lots of writers were full of mea culpas about Iraq. Fukuyama is one of them. Uh, George Packer is another. His book, The Assassin's Gate, is a much more like probing and um, revealing book than a long short war because Packer is actually honestly confronting how the ways in which he got it wrong and the, the assumptions he shouldn't have made. And I just, I do think that they're, you know, as brilliant as Hitchens was, I, I really wish we could have had some kind of confessional like that about the mistakes regarding the Iraq war. And I, I just, it was never forthcoming and it, it would have been interesting to read, but. And, uh, and fairness, I think one should say that, a long short war was a collection of of essays from before and at the beginning of the Iraq. Yeah. So it wasn't, you know, a, a yeah reflection coming. Good. It's a good point, but I mean, I do say when it comes to those core arguments, this is the whole problem. I mean, years down the road, when he was writing about Iraq, and I mean, because he would occasionally, you know, start conversations on C-SPAN and say, you know, you can't help but be horrified by the state of modern Iraq. He would he would talk about how. Um, the way the way in which the war was planned and executed was horrific you know he would say things like when i talked to people at the state department i didn't think it was my job to ask are you going to be able to keep the lights on in baghdad or are you going to be able to deliver you know goods and services to the people who need them he's like i should have been asking those questions so he'll have like some moments of self-criticism but i just you really you just can't compare anything hitchens ever wrote or said to something like the assassin's gate because it just he just wasn't in that kind of confessional mode about Iraq ever, and because and and I think he had good reasons for being so stubborn because a lot of the anti-war arguments were horrendously bad, <laughs> and there, there's a really strong case to be made against the Iraq War, but you know when when there are people like you know, George Galloway just essentially calling for um, the insurgency to attack and kill. Uh, Western troops in the country. Like, this is an insurgency made up of the Zarqawis of the world and former Baathists. And like, this is this is a nightmarish collection of individuals. And I'm sure there were some organic resistors mixed in there. But like, conf- look at what you're actually confronting in the country. And I just think that the horror of what happened with the Civil War and how it was cynically uh, intensified by people like Zarqawi and how it was so tinged with religious sectarianism and hatred like, that's why Hitchens was so, he had to keep taking this firm line all the time, at least in his mind, he had to. 
and he he didn't want to he didn't want to go all wishy-washy he's just like he wanted it to be this like firm case from beginning to end but i think that's so i understand where he was coming from but you know i i struggle to look at iraq in that light just because it's it, there's a lot to be held to account for as well so that's a I'll just I'll just say that uh, George Galloway is is a disgrace to my nation. Yeah, that's right. He's, he's, the only, a, he's the only reason that I can find to be ashamed of being Scottish. He's yeah, yeah. You have such a good tradition, and then it has to produce. You know, your country has to produce clowns yeah, like I mean, Galloway. Because I mean, the points you make about about Hitchens is uh, sort of semi criticisms of his of himself. Um, it just made me think of uh, a part of uh, Richard Seymour's book, The Trial of Christopher Hitchens. I mean, it's been a while, so I might be misremembering his point, but I think he 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 tried to argue that Hitchens, uh, you know, knew he was wrong over Iraq, and that's why he kind of moved into the anti-religion sphere uh, to kind of distract from his. Uh, from his folly over Iraq. And I always thought that the refutation to that was quite obvious, was that, you know, he didn't stop talking about Iraq. No, he didn't even come close to stop. I mean, well, he, he, I think, I mean, he I talked mean, about Iraq in God is Not Great. Exactly. I, and I think I think the longest chapter in Hitch 22, his memoir, was about Iraq, in which he makes all of these arguments that you talk about, you know, that, you know, I didn't think it was my job to to ask about the... the uh, electricity generators and so on and so forth mm-hmm. so he actually somehow stopped thinking about um it was something that he was still engaged with and trying to defend and sometimes um perhaps straining too much to defend um all the time you know it was it was it was a preoccupation of his yeah nobody can say that he uh that he backed away from that argument i mean beyond the fact that he mentions it in um, God is Not Great, the, the chapter in uh, Hitch 22 discusses this uh, New Statesman piece he wrote in the 70s when he was like 26 years old, which describes Saddam Hussein as the first visionary statesman since Nasser. And all of these, <laughs> all of Hitchens's critics and all these people on the left just ripped into shreds for that, of course. And the what's interesting is if you actually return to that essay itself, first of all, obviously Saddam Hussein hadn't committed all of his worst crimes at that point. He, he wasn't even he hadn't even taken full control of the country, which didn't happen for a couple more years. Um, but Hitchens actually did mention the fact that the Kurds had been betrayed by the United States, that Iraq was an increasingly repressive country. You know, he you could see the germs of his later arguments about Iraq. I mean, I can obviously understand uh, somebody uh, on the anti-war left wanting to take a victory lap around a quote like the one I just mentioned about Saddam Hussein and Nasser. But it, it's just it's also worth remembering that he, this was a completely different era, and he was he was young when he wrote this. I mean, really, it's the stuff he was saying about American statecraft could have been printed in the trial of Henry Kissinger, and actually, even before September 11th. Uh, when he was on on tour, on his book tour, talking about Kissinger, he he talked about Halabja and he talked about Assam Hussein's crimes with every bit as much uh, bitterness and, and hatred as he would after September 11th and then after the invasion of Iraq. He was he was consistently writing about the horrors of Baathist Iraq throughout throughout the 90s. And I think that's something that's often lost. People do think this is kind of this cause that he picked up later in life but that's absolutely not true and he he says that 
um, he was riding around with some Kurds, some, I think, Peshmerga fighters uh, in a Jeep uh, right after the Gulf War. I think it was it was around the time of the Gulf War. And there was a, a picture of George H.W. Bush um, taped to the windshield. And Hitchens was he was like worried about what um, any journalist they might come across would say if he saw he's like riding with this picture of Bush. And he like he, he said, do you have to have that there? And the guy said something like, yeah, well, without uh, your president, you know, we 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 might not survive. I mean, this was this was a time when the United States was just about to impose a no fly zone over northern Iraq if it hadn't already. Again, I'm trying to get the timeline exactly right. But Hitchens said he didn't have a snarky response for those guys. And that's and that, it is true that Operation Provide Comfort and um, other operations that were taken in Iraq in the sort of interwar period after the Gulf War and before the Iraq War in 2003 protected a lot of people. And and even though Saddam Hussein sometimes violated those no-fly zones and like sent tanks into Kurdistan in uh, the mid-90s, um, it's hard to argue that the United States wasn't at least trying to do the right thing in terms of human rights in Iraq. And so if that's true, that Hitchens had that experience after the Gulf War, it definitely does show up in some of his writing about about Iraq throughout the decade. So, you know, it's it's not it wasn't this affectation. It wasn't some position that he took uh, just in, when he was caught up in militaristic fervor after September the 11th. You know, and Hitchens had always demonstrated that he was an interventionist at heart. I mean, he pushed really hard for uh, Western involvement in Bosnia and Kosovo. And yeah. I, do, uh, I mean, that, that goes to Seymour's point that it wasn't just something that he abandoned, uh, you know, once he realized it was unpopular, you know. He, oh yeah, that's, that's just, that's just he ridiculous. Jumped, he jumped, uh, you know, jumped on the atheism bandwagon. Right. Uh, to right. I think it. he was pretty consistent with the atheism too. I mean, yeah, he, was, he, he sounds... He never stopped talking about Iraq in that sense. No, absolutely not. I read Salman Rushdie uh, wrote something after Hitchens' death about how he he regained his gen, genuine intellectual ground and recovered from the Iraq mistake when he went on his anti-God tour. And I just I always thought, well, you know, he would have he would have argued that his opposition to religion and his support for that war extended from the same anti-totalitarian impulse. Mm-hmm. So to uh, to continue with uh, Iraq. Uh, I think, I mean, uh, one of the most interesting discussions in the book, in your book, is is about the, you know, Hitchens tried to hew to this ideal of international cooperation against um, totalitarianism. And fundamentally, that's what he saw as being the main reason to invade Iraq. Um, but ultimately, because of the way in which that panned out, he kind of, his, or not, he didn't, under, he, I mean, his arguments kind of undermined the idea of, of um, you know, multilateralism. And I know that's a term he would have uh, scorned in many ways, mm-hmm. but, uh, but you know, the, the, this, this idea of um, democratic powers acting for the greater good in the world. Um, was kind of undermined by the Iraq war unintentionally um, because yeah. of the way in which it was uh, inaugurated and conducted. Yeah. So discuss that particular contradiction. Uh, yeah. So that's one of the most frustrating things about Hitchens's career, especially after nine 11 
if you go back and look at the sorts of conversations that the leaders of Western democracies were having, and that even, you know, the, even Kofi Annan was having about armed interventionism and about interventionism as a principle and the idea of the responsibility to protect. Um, you can look at a, a speech that Tony Blair delivered in Chicago, where he sort of outlined some of the conditions for intervention, and they should be, and these conditions should be based on protecting vulnerable populations, maintaining international stability, all these things. I mean, he, these, he wasn't making an argument for imperialism. And I refuse, I don't believe that the interventions in the Balkans were imperial, you know, and, and this was, this was happening throughout the nineties. Like it, these are arguments that had been sort of germinating for a long time. And, and people like Bernard uh, Kouchner and, you know, uh, uh, these other French intellectuals had put, put them forward uh, much earlier in the seventies, you know, and they, they just sort of started to hit their stride uh, right before nine 11. And then the invasion of Afghanistan was, it was almost sanctioned by the UN. It wasn't exactly sanctioned. That's kind of a technical detail, but it did have the full support of NATO and it triggered article five. And it was a, it was an international effort to oust the Taliban and to try to move uh, Afghanistan toward um, a liberal democratic future. I mean, you know, that was probably the tallest order you can imagine because (laughs) Afghanistan is such uh, for lack of a better word, balkanized or disjointed country. And that, that's why people who, you know, look back on the past 20 years of nation building there and, and just kind of sneer at the effort and express contempt, they, I don't think they appreciate how difficult the undertaking was or how much progress was made. Anyway, the point is there was an emerging international norm about interventionism and the acceptability of interventionism. And then came Iraq and Iraq split NATO. NATO did not formally support it as an institution but some NATO countries obviously did take part alongside the United States. Um, and this, this really did reverse a lot of momentum toward the idea of a global system that could protect human rights and that could intervene when necessary. And it, I understand Hitchens' criticisms of the United Nations, which is very far from a perfect body. And the UN Human Rights Council is, has just a long, unbroken record of uh, a massive hypocrisy. You know, and I, I remember there was a panel discussion that Hitchens took part in alongside Samantha Power, where, you know, Samantha Power was much more circumspect about the Iraq war than Hitchens was. She, she thought it was a bad idea and that it would, it would sort of have the effect that it did have, which was undermining the norms that were emerging at the time, which she had made a very strong case for. And, but she did, she did acknowledge, though, that having a security council on which Russia and China both have a permanent veto it's a farce. I mean, it's very difficult to build an international system around protecting human rights when you have a, a security council that, that is, you know, is dominated by these autocracies. Um, so those are the arguments against the UN. But at the same time, you know, we had our, our German allies were very uh, suspicious of the Iraq war. Many of the countries that threw in their lot with us after September 11th and uh, during the Afghanistan war were, were they were they thought this was a terrible idea, frankly. And it, it, it created so much backlash domestically in the United States and in uh, publics around the world to the idea of interventionism. But I do think it's one of the reasons why Obama's intervention in Libya was so, was so half-hearted. It's one of the reasons why Obama said, I want this to take weeks, you know, I think maybe even days at one point. He said he wanted to lead from behind. And then all of the Western powers abandoned Libya to factionalism and, and civil war. Um, and it's 
probably part of the reason why the Syrian civil war was allowed to rage unchecked year after year after year and become one of the biggest migration and and just basic crises, uh, human suffering crises on the planet. And so it just, it, it seems complacent to ignore the fact that the Iraq war did set this project back. And it was a project Hitchens was on board with. Um, but that's why, that's why it's strange to hear him uh, sneer about multilateralism. I mean, multilateralism was something he did support, but he just, he just thought the UN was too broken to get anything done in Iraq. And I, I do think that the arguments that were made, that Hitchens made, about how um, the existing resolutions on Iraq were enough and they gave the United States the right to invade. Those just aren't very good legal arguments. It's just not true. I mean, the United States did invade Iraq in contravention of international laws. So anyway, that's my, that's my basic, I've, I've actually been, been on this hobby horse for a while because I have a lot of sympathy with the idea behind the Iraq war, but I think you have to look at its practical effects as soberly and honestly as you can. Um, and I, I'm afraid Hitchens, he didn't really seem to engage with this particular element of the argument. And I kind of wish he would have. And I think he might have, you know, given enough time. But again, don't want to summon Hitchens' ghost. <laughs> it reminds me of, um, <clears throat> there was a conversation he had with Shashi Tharoor, um, who I also admire mentally, um, Indian uh, diplomat and, and and author. And uh, in, in that discussion, they, they talk about... Um, the UN and Hitchens says something like, uh, again, I can't, I can't um, recreate the exact uh, point from from uh, from memory on the spot, uh, but something like the the you know the UN just com- has completely discredited discredited itself, you know, in Bosnia and Darfur, um, and that it's just been unable to uh, you know stop these horrendous crimes. You know, you know, you know. By the time the UN got involved, there were no more bodies left to burn. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Something, something in that spirit, anyway. Um, and all of those are very fair points. You know, the 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 complete failures of the UN to to stop those those crimes. Um, but that doesn't necessarily discredit the idea of the UN itself and the possibilities afforded by it. Um, and that's something I think that he he missed. I think probably, probably, yeah. He sort of he got started getting to a point where he was suggesting potentially some kind of new um, League of Democracies idea. This is actually something that Eli Lake occasionally talks about: how the UN is just so far gone as an institution that democratic countries around the world should maybe develop something comparable. I, I don't want to get too into his argument because I'm afraid I'll misstate it, but. I do think Hitchens started to sort of explore that idea, and he was he was always a very big booster of both um, U.S. European relations and and uh, Anglo American relations mm. in terms of you know NATO mm. and also just political and diplomatic and economic integration. But I I don't yeah I think it, it would have been interesting to see uh, how his views of the UN would have developed over time. Uh, it would certainly be interesting to get his take on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, you can say with almost certainty that he would have viewed it with clear eyes and he would have recognized that this is a case of an authoritarian neighbor attempting to extinguish the existence of a democratic neighbor. And he he was very clear-eyed about Russian chauvinism and imperialism long before, I mean, this is long before even the invasion and annexation of uh, Crimea. But he he recognized the project that uh, Putin was engaged in. But yeah, I, I think he would have definitely, I, I can 
certainly picture him um, embracing the strengthening of NATO and the expansion of NATO. And, you know, the fact that Germany is now actually taking defense seriously in a way that it hasn't done for many decades. And, you know, it's just it's a shame. It's a shame that he he died before so many interesting things happen in the world. And, you know, it's trying to remind people that he had a few a few reasonable things to say about this endless procession of crises. <laughs> there is, I mean, and in, in that in that dialogue between uh, him and, and, and Theroux, um, Shashi Theroux says in response, I think, to <laughs> one of uh, one of his tirades about the UN and its failures. Because uh, Theroux, I think, was a was a uh, you know, uh, he he was a diplomat for the UN, I believe, at some point. Um, and he just kind of turns around and goes, you know, it's 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 a shame to disagree with you because I enjoy you so much. <sighs> Uh, you know, it's it's uh, you know <laughs> you know even when I'm uh, you know in complete uh, opposition to you, you know I just uh, you know I, I I just I just enjoy your 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 statements and your arguments so much and enjoy watching you make those arguments, um, which I think is 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 a nice compliment to have from an enemy. Uh, was this was this their discussion about free speech and yeah. the cartoon controversies? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Hitchens had a really great, it's it's in my book, I reproduced it, but he has this just off the cuff um, speech about how we really shouldn't treat people in other countries with a different set of standards. And what we really need is a global standard for justice and ethics and, and for free speech. And we need to support dissidents, whether they, you know, whether they are Muslims in an era of Hindu nationalism in India, or whether they are, you know, women in Iran, and just anybody who supports liberal principles. And it's just like, it's a great summation of his views on both interventionism, you know, kind of soft interventionism, and just regular internationalism and solidarity, and free speech, and just a series, I think I said something after I, I reproduced the quote, um, like, this is a great encapsulation of his core political interests in the last couple of decades of his life. And it was another just great example of how he could say something off the cuff that really reads better than what I could write. I mean, it was, it was an amazing little paragraph that he provided there. But anyway, I, I don't know exactly where that's at in the book. I think it's in, it might be in the free speech chapter, but yeah, that was a great debate. Um, and I, I thought it was sort of Hitchens at his best throughout much of it. Mm. Uh, I mean, this reminds me of. I mean, this this whole. It reminds me of this uh, essay that he wrote, or not. Well, a review of um, Andrew Roberts' book about the Anglosphere or the English-speaking peoples, um, and in that he kind of trashes the UN and even NATO to an extent. He says NATO, you know, took it took its time to get its act together over uh, over Bosnia. Um, and then he he also kind of praises you know the the sort of inclusion of India in this uh, you know new kind of uh, English speaking coalition uh, and yet now I think and as 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 legitimately based upon his principles I think he would be championing NATO in its response to uh, the Russian invasion. And equally, I think he would have been one of those who were in the forefront of the of of criticizing, you know, the way India has gone in recent years. 
uh, mm -hmm. uh, the growth of of of, of uh, Hindu nationalism and and all of that. Um, so that I mean that's just something I note just as an interesting point. But you say you say when when yeah, you know he he kind of uh, believed in these universal standards uh, that uh, we should uh, hold uh, everyone to account on the same basis. Um, I know that some people, and specifically uh, our old friend Ben Burgess, um, you know he he would say that Hitchens is or was uh, kind of juvenile in that sense. You know, like, oh, okay, so you believe in these universal standards, but, you know, that doesn't really apply to the US, for example. You know, you thought Kissinger could be tried, but, I mean, he was, you know, he, he was protected by the US. He was he was a US um, official and, and uh, veteran. You know, he would never have been... He would never have been brought to trial in the same way that, say, an African dictator would, you know, in the same way that Charles Taylor would have been or was, um, that these standards, uh, you know, whatever you might idealise them as, they're just not, uh, they're just not universal or fair, and they're often weighted towards uh, the US or against the US, as it were. Um, and that this this is a kind of doomed project because it relies on on the dominance of of a certain faction uh, of 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 countries or even just one country. So what, um, what think, I mean, well, I mean, so, I mean, what would you say to that, and what what may Hitchens have said to that? Well, I think I think. I, I don't want to speak too much for Burgess, but I think what he would argue is that um, Hitchens's arguments about liberal democracy in Iraq were just a smokescreen for classical imperialism. Though I, I don't think uh, Burgess would accuse Hitchens of being an imperialist. No, he, he probably he probably recognizes that Hitchens uh, held that position for genuine internationalist reasons. Um, I, I, I don't I don't think Burgess takes a cynical view of Hitchens, which is one of the things I like about Burgess, it sets him apart from uh, a lot of other left-wing critics like Chris Hedges, who just says he's a genocidal maniac, you know. It's amazing that Hedges is still, like, as respected, as widely respected as he is. Just, I mean, sorry for the quick aside, but I mean, I remember I was watching The Hurt Locker in theaters, and this Chris Hedges quote comes up at the very beginning of it. This guy's like, the way in which he talks about Hitchens alone was so revolting and so, and so far removed from reality the way he talks about sam harris like he always accuses them of having these genocidal um desires and these you know they're just they're just pure sadists and they just want to see the blood of you know it, it's just it's unbelievable anyway sorry but yeah uh, burgess uh, burgess is a much more good faith uh, critic of hitchens and i do think that he would probably say that hitchens's conception of a global order or the sort of global order that i'm arguing for is naive um, and that it it is far too permissive of Western crimes while seeking to posture ethically and politically about the crimes of others. This is sort of a central Chomskyan maxim as well. And on one level, that's probably true. I mean, it is actually very difficult to imagine if if there were serious efforts, and there have been a couple efforts to hold Kissinger to account you just can't imagine a universe in which the United States like extradites Henry Kissinger. 
<laughs> to stand trial for crimes against humanity. I mean, I don't know about you, but I do find that <laughs> really difficult to imagine. But it's it would be a weird it would be a weird criticism of Hitchens because Hitchens did write a book claiming that Kissinger should be tried as a as a war criminal. I mean, Hitchens clearly wanted the standards to be applied to the United States, and when you know when the the crimes in in Iraq were uncovered uh, committed by coalition forces you know it's not like Hitchens spared any uh, ink criticizing them you know Abu Ghraib is what I'm thinking of he was he he said it was it was a horror show he also said that the prison was worse under Saddam Hussein but that's I mean I, I get the point that's really more of a rhetorical point than anything I mean you don't hold yourself to the standards of Saddam Hussein that's the whole that's the whole point but and I, I guess, again, I agree. I mean, I'm not <clears throat> when I make when I make these points. I'm not I'm not trying to speak for anyone. I'm not going to um, say that this is a a proper pressy of their argument. But um, as I understand it, that argument is more. Is, it's not so much that okay. So Hitchens believed in this in this idea of international justice. It's just that that's completely wrong headed. Um, there was just never a chance of Kissinger being held to account. Whereas other um, horrible people from, you know, from the third world, you know, they they have a good chance of being held to account. Um, or even the second world, or whatever you want to call it. You know, they all, they all have a chance of being held to account because, simply because of the fact that they're not America. Uh, you know, they're not superpowers. They're not part of this coalition of democracies, of these really powerful democracies, and that they are, you know, therefore, therefore even putting even putting some sort of ideal faith in, in the possibility of this universal standard is completely wrong. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, I don't know. Um, in terms of a practical matter, like, I, I don't know exactly what... Burgess would say about the United States efforts to build sort of a, a global order. Uh, I'm sure he would accuse the United States of hypocrisy without a doubt. You know, anybody who wants to criticize um, Slobodan Milosevic or Putin or whatever, like, I'm sure he would say, well, you need to look in the mirror. You need to look at the war crimes that have been committed by the United States. That's that's a pretty common refrain on the left. Um, in terms of its practicality, I do I do think that Hitchens probably did think that the arrest and prosecution of Kissinger was more likely than it ever actually was. And the United States does, I mean, I, I actually forgot what the formal name of the legislation was, but under Bush, the United States passed, or the Congress passed, and Bush signed something known as the Hague Invasion Act, which basically states that an American is being being held at the Hague for crimes against humanity or whatever. The United States sort of reserves the right to you know send in the paratroopers and get that person out. <laughs> That's kind of the caricatured version, but it's basically there. There's this weird tension in the United States where um, our our exceptionalism can lead us to be can lead us to behave in ways that do flout international standards and rules, but we kind of claim to do those things in the name of universal rules and and principles and so like you know Hitchens would say just screw the UN regarding um Iraq what we have here is a totalitarian psychopath who could explode at any time and has he actually people forget that Saddam positioned his troops to invade Kuwait a second time a few years after the war in the Gulf War 
I mean, he really was just a complete nut job. And, and I think he just said, he's such a big threat. We just take him out and I'm doing it for internationalist reasons. And I'm doing it because I feel a sense of solidarity with uh, the Kurds and with Democrats in Iraq and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I just, the problem with that is, yeah, I really do think we have to get to a point where we're building the structures of an international community. And that, that is going to, it's going to require some pain because you can't, you can't just foist certain principles on everybody, even if they seem universal and even if they're being adopted more universally just to get the thing to function. You know, I mean, like I remember when Robert Wright actually talked to Eli Lake about this project that Lake was mentioning where you sort of create this league of democracies. He was like, but there are other areas where we're just going to have to cooperate with totalitarian states. I mean, climate change would be a good example. Like we do want to just cooperate with China on economic matters and on arresting climate change. And, you know, so there, there are areas where you kind of have to have international institutions that permit countries that are very different to cooperate. And then areas where, yeah, it's, it's a moral question. And I mean, I, I am inclined to say that if the UN doesn't want to act on Rwanda and the United States, if we'd sent 10,000 troops in, which is probably all it would have taken to prevent hundreds of thousands of people from being killed on, on a personal level. Yes. I think that should have just happened. And I, you know, you can call me inconsistent if you want, but I do think that's actually quite different from the situation that confronted Iraq, not because Saddam Hussein hadn't committed gross crimes and committed genocide himself, which he had done, but because Rwanda was an ongoing situation and an immediate intervention could have saved so many people. So I do think that had the United States done that, I would think that was you know, fulfilling an international obligation. And, and you know that that decision would not have been criticized in the same way that the Iraq war was. Um, so it's it's just a very it's a very difficult and nuanced area in terms of actually building these institutions. But I just I'm afraid that even 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 on the domestic front, Hitchens knows that Obama ran against the Iraq war. I mean, he ran on his opposition to that war in many ways. It was what set him apart from Hillary Clinton in the primaries. Uh, he was able to say, you know, she she supported this disaster. And I just never did. And that's one reason you should vote for me. And it, the public in the United States at that time was very war weary. And so th- like, this is a cost. It's a huge cost to doing something like Iraq. And I'm not saying that it totally outweighs the decision to invade itself, but it's just, I, I you know, you have to face the political reality that surrounds you in the world. And I do think alienating allies and infuriating your own population. And, you know, you it's hard to deny that Iraq fed some of the populist sentiment we see now. I mean, look at look at, at Trump and what he had to say about Iraq. I mean, he was he was very critical of the war, uh, not necessarily when it happened. I think he did kind of fudge that. I think he supported it sort of nominally in the early days, but he sure as shit didn't support it in 2016, 2015. I mean, he's running for president and he, he ripped Jeb to shreds for the fact that his brother prosecuted the war. So anyway, it, yeah, I, that's a long winded answer. Uh, I just It's just to say that the United States is uh, hypocritical about some of these things. And we, we probably still are. I and mean, we, we are, in fact, still to this day. But I do think the I do think one area where the Burgesses of the world um, are missing the point is just the fact that the United States since the Cold War really hasn't done, we've done nothing akin to the air, the carpet bombing of Cambodia. I mean, it, it's, it, the wars in the Balkans were about as close to humanitarian interventions as you can get in the modern era. The war in Afghanistan is imminently defensible. We were just attacked by Al-Qaeda. They were being harbored by the Taliban. And then once you've invaded, what, what do you do? You're faced with the central dilemma of the war right off the bat. If you leave, the state collapses. If you stay, then you're an occupying power and you'll be fighting for a long time. 
you know, but that war was, and then Iraq is the one that, you know, you could, you could compare it to Vietnam and people have certainly done it ad nauseum. Uh, but I actually think when, when Bush presented the freedom agenda and when all these people pushed for the invasion of Iraq, I do think that the neocons had a coherent worldview. I think it was anti-totalitarian. I, I do think they naively thought that you could build liberal democracy in relatively short order uh, in Iraq. And it just it didn't turn out to be so. But I, I, I the, like people like Burgess view the post-Cold War projects of U.S. foreign policy with the utmost cynicism. And I just don't view them that cynically. I think we have some that were com completely, nearly completely defensible, and then others that are still actually pretty defensible, despite the bad outcomes. Yeah. Sorry, no, that was long-winded. I, 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 I agree. Um, I would say that um, <clears throat> in terms, you know, I mean, this obviously isn't the reason to prosecute somebody uh, in a court of law, but I think in the interest of fairness, I think the US would gain quite a lot of credibility if it uh, prosecuted Henry Gessinger. Um, uh, and and there's still time. <laughs> still time. He's still he's still fucking. Uh, don't say don't say that as if he won't bury us all. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, it's, no, I know you're I, right. I mean, sorry to 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 interrupt, but but this is, and I, I know we're uh, we're getting on in time, uh, and this is a question I probably should have asked earlier, but. To go back to your book, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, give us a brief pressy of your book. Um, just I mean, sort of a, a question, a, just, to, just to leave you with, but um, uh, general overview of yeah, an overview. You know, like um, you know what you know what sort of themes uh, do you deal with? Uh, okay, uh, yeah. So how, it's... how can, or in other words, how can Hitchens save the left? Yeah, so under a few headings, uh, the first chapter is about the first, it's called First Amendment Absolutism. It's just about free expression and the, the way in which I discuss free expression and Hitchens's career and his position on it is to emphasize the pernicious effects of self-censorship and the effects of tribalism and all of the forms of censorship that ha actually do infect and affect the way writers behave in the third decade of the 21st century you know so i talked about um the fatwa against rushdie and the fact that at the time um a lot of liberals didn't really want to speak up in defense of free speech and um people like jimmy carter were penning op-eds about how we really need to respect um uh, islamic sensitivities which as hitchens pointed out is the most insulting thing you can possibly do because there are a lot of liberals and um, a lot of Democrats in the Muslim world, for lack of a better term, who were horrified by the fatwa against Rushdie. Obviously, that's taken on renewed meaning after the horrific attack on Rushdie. Um, but and I, 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 didn't, I didn't really see many people making the sort of uh, argument that Hitchens confronted back then. I didn't see that quite as frequently this time around. But maybe you can correct me on that if you've seen some truly egregious examples of stupidity. Anyway, so that's just that's that's the First Amendment. Um, the second chapter is about identity politics. Hitchens was a universalist. Uh, identitarianism in general horrified him. All forms of tribalism horrified him. And we have gotten to a point where many people on the left treat uh, skin color and gender and sexuality as these sort of like, as these automatic signifiers 
of of political valence you know like they're, they're like they they they're constructing the worldviews around the interconnections between races and the tensions between races and the sexes and they're they're building the worldviews around um these narrower and narrower identity uh, groups that we can cling to and hitchens just thought he thought that would i mean i can almost certainly tell you that he would have regarded that as a move in the wrong direction what we need to do is downplay these superficial differences and recognize our common humanity. So um, then the third chapter deals with his political evolution, um, just how he went from being a staunch socialist in the 80s to becoming sort of an interventionist in the 90s and then abandoning socialism and just defending liberal democracy um, as a general set of ideas. Um, fourth chapter, Iraq, already discussed that enough. Fifth chapter, um, it's about Hitchens and authoritarianism. So authoritarianism, both on the left and the right. He actually had a lot more to say about um, the early forms of right-wing populism that have really gained traction and um, have dominated our politics for the past six or seven years. Um, so he, he wrote a lot about like Glenn Beck and the Tea Party and you know the emergence of right-wing populism in Europe and Pat Buchanan's style of isolationism, which is now sort of reflected by figures like Tucker Carlson. So that's, that's chapter five. And then six is about internationalism, um, which is another extension of his universalism. And that's uh, yeah, that's, a, that's the, that's the rundown, a quick, a quick, and then the, the final chapter is just about how he was consistently liberal throughout his life. Um, the George Packer described or said that Hitchens once told him that he's painite which means kind of a, a, a classical liberal in the mold of the American, the, the United States founders. And um, I, I do think that that's, that's a good, it's a good way to look at Hitchens' views. He's kind of an old fashioned liberal in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, you probably weren't expecting a chapter by chapter rundown, but I just got going and then thought I'd finish. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um, <clears throat> though I would say in terms of being a painate, it's not quite the same as being, being a you know a, a, you know on board with the American founders is being on board with a particular conception of America, um, and perhaps a more radical conception of America than many of the founding fathers would have um, been comfortable with. You know, it's, it's yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and you know, uh, very different conceptions of of what America means than John Adams, and even. Uh, Washington um yeah and, that's absolutely I true to, I do want to come back to that about America but first I realize there's a question that I wanted to ask uh beforehand um there's some might say that okay okay we you know we're we're, we're all on board with liberal ideas you know anti-totalitarian well everyone's against totalitarianism you know what why does that matter today you know everyone's going to be going to be uh you know dead set against that you know uh so so why why should that be an organizing principle of our politics you know why why does that matter why why should it be the case that we uh that we focus extensively on that surely it's it's uh well to to coin a term self-evident uh, why, why should we listen to Hitchens when he just, you know, when he says he's anti-totalitarian? You know, everybody's anti-totalitarianism, surely. Uh, yeah, that's something that Stephen Waltz actually said about him right after he died. He wrote this brief obituary, which was uh, pretty kind to Hitchens, but he just said, 
he's the Hitchens uh, made the case that his greatest political foe was totalitarianism. And he was like, well, who, who can't sign on to that? And as it happens, a lot of people can't sign on to that because Hitchens regarded religion as a manifestation of totalitarianism. That wasn't exactly the consensus view in the United States. It's not the consensus view now. Um, Hitchens' support for the war in Iraq was was an expression of his anti-totalitarianism. That's the position that lost him the most friends. It was the most controversial position he ever took. And I actually think, and in, the, in chapter five, which is where I really kind of explore this idea of um, Hitchens' op position to totalitarianism and authoritarianism more generally. Um, I just mentioned that it might be better to think about his influence today as anti-authoritarian, just because it's a more, I mean, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't describe Donald Trump as totalitarian, but I, I would describe him as deeply authoritarian. I'd, I'd say the same thing about Viktor Orban, you know, and I, I do think that, the, that that's the threat that many in the West actually face. That's the internal threat. And, you know, the same impulses that can lead to totalitarianism are pretty evident with uh, authoritarianism. And so, you know, just the, the desire to squelch speech that you don't like. I mean, the, the desire to brand certain groups of people um, either less American or un-American. You know, these are, these are very ugly. But, you know, I, I, I actually kind of one of my other hobby horses is that I really hate it when people just describe Donald Trump as like an outright fascist. Like I've always thought that that was, it's a poor understanding, historical understanding of the word. And, you know, we can have that discussion and I've sort of tried to reason through it in several articles, but I always thought that, that was it's a more specific word than people in the United States and in the West seem to think it is. And um, he's, he's, it's much better to think about him in terms of just generic authoritarianism and just good old fashioned corruption. But anyway, um, on so on the question of uh his totalitarian anti-totalitarianism i just think this is an it's an eternal struggle like it, it's the the thing that people are fighting against in iran right now is totalitarianism the thing that the chinese distance are fighting against is totalitarianism um and we've just recently seen an outbreak of uh, public unrest in china that we haven't seen in a very long time i mean probably since like Tiananmen. And it's a reminder that these elements exist in Chinese society. And there's only so far you can push people. There's only so long that you can break that pact where you say you, you'll have security and economic growth and stability in exchange for your freedoms. Well, I mean, you know, China's not going to grow at 6% forever. In fact, it's growing much less quickly over the past year. And it's, it's foisting these lockdowns on people that are torturing them and, you know, depriving them of the freedom of movement that the rest of the world seems to have. Um, so I just to say that totalitarianism isn't something we need to worry about anymore or it's something we've all agreed on is, is certainly uh, ahistorical and it doesn't it doesn't accurately reflect the actual world we live in. No, I, I completely agree. And I think um, <clears throat> much of the reaction to the Ukraine invasion shows that even being anti-authoritarianism is, is not by any means a an assured uh, stance of, of many people, right and left. Um, just on the point, just to be self-indulgent, the point about Trump and being a fascist, uh, it's actually an, uh, an evolution that I've kind of undergone. As, um, you know, a few years ago, back when he was first elected, I was like, oh, he's not a fascist, he's just an opportunist. Um, more recently, I've called him a semi-fascist. But actually now I would actually be quite comfortable using the label just out and out fascist, uh, given his 
his most recent um, outbursts. Um, the, the events leading up to the election in 2020 and the events following it do make me question like my rigidity on that point. I mean, it did get to a point where this is a this is now a concerted effort to overthrow an election. I mean, this is I, I do think that generic authoritarianism doesn't quite capture it. Um, but I would actually be curious to know why you why you use that specific word. Because, you know, Hitchens actually listed all the reasons why he thought jihadism was fascist. And he would he would mention things like very explicit anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. I mean, the desire to completely control the, the private lives of people um, within sort of the new uh, the new Islamic state, should it be established. And he just went down the list and he sort of, these are the conditions. So why, why would you say that Trump qualifies? I think I would say now, I mean, a lot of those conditions I would think were, were met already. Um, you know, one, one of the other conditions is, is looking back towards some sort of great uh, past, some great uh, previous state of affairs. Um, you know, that, that was the basis of his, his appeal in the first place. Um, but he's also evinced, you know, a complete disregard for free speech while he was in office and beforehand. Um, he's, you know, um, inspired and uh, inflamed conspiracy theories about the election, about, um, you know, that it was stolen by the shady cabal of, of degenerate uh, uh Democrats with their shady financier allies, um, and I think the 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 sort of tipping point for me was simply the fact, you know, towards full blown fascist is that simply the fact that he says, you know, okay, it's all over. Uh, we don't need these rules and this constitution anymore. We need to overthrow that and uh, install, you know, a regime of 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 true Americans. Uh, and there, there is something of the Third Reich about that for me, you know, this this idea of of uh, well, well, maybe, maybe. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm alert to the fact that you could have argued that beforehand, um, but I was I was always hesitant to ascribe that label to him. Uh, but now that he's just finally come out and said it, that he he would be quite willing to annul the constitution to abandon all of the rules of liberal democracy in the name of, um, you know, make America great again, you know, some sort of uh, absolutist conception of what it means to be America, what it means to be American, uh, which quite often, uh, both uh, uh, before uh, his defeat and after, has involved appeals to implicitly at least uh, racial um, um, aspects of of his audience you know i think i think all of it just adds up now to to something that one could legitimately call fascist i just i just i just don't see another word for it now i think it's just it's just been a smart it's just been you know one thing after another and now, finally, I think you could say 
not just an opportunist, corrupt, lying, greedy, strange-looking bastard, but out-and-out fascist authoritarian. I think that's, you know, if, 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 if he had his way, he would... Shot, I mean, he, he'd be the great leader. He'd be the dear leader. That's yeah, what... well, I mean, we know we know for a fact that if, if he could have annulled the 2020 election, he just would have done it. And that's why, I mean, even leading up to it, I, I wrote a series of articles and I, I just said this is the worst thing he's done by a long shot because it's something that actually does, it will, it will have a permanent effect on democratic norms in the country. You can see it right now with Carrie Lake. I mean, she loses. And she immediately contests the results and she immediately sues and says that her, her voters were disenfranchised. And this is just, this is just a stain that is not going to wash off of our body politic for a very long time. And I'm, I'm more, I, I will happily concede that I'm much more sympathetic to that case now than I was uh, several years ago. It did seem like the word was being used much more opportunistically. I will say that even in 2016, he said the, he would respect the results of the election if he won i mean he did he did declare that outright right out of the gate and and certainly uh the the way in which i mean some of the things he said on the campaign trail um in 2015 and 2016 were were horrifying i mean he said he wanted to create a registry of american muslims um you know when when he later argued that it was never a muslim ban you know because certain countries that wouldn't classified as a muslim were included it was just nonsense he obviously wanted to ban muslims from the country he'd made that point abundantly clear um that was horrifying and every every point you made is well taken i mean there there are distinctions i i actually do think that as an ideology i just think it's it's his own obsession with personal power and staying in power i i just think i i do think it was a just massive cynicism like on a scale that we've just never seen in that office before. I just find it extremely hard to believe. I mean, if you think about, if you think about Hitler, because this is, this is the person who people are trying to call to mind when they call Trump a fascist, you know, it is. And we, people want that stain to be on him. So it's just, this was a guy who was as ideological as, as human beings can be, you know, and, and he, he had what he regarded as a coherent um, idea of what the world should look like. And I, I just don't get that sense from Trump. I never have. And I still don't, not even to this day. I feel like he will do anything, but I don't feel like the man is the least bit ideological. I think the only consistent ideology that he has demonstrated since the late 80s and early 90s is this sort of nativism and this this isolationism. I mean, he it seems kind of limp. I mean, if I'm going to bring up Lindbergh and say he's in that tradition, well, then yeah, we are definitely flirting with the F word. <laughs> but and 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 Pat Buchanan as well. Like, there's a great piece in uh, Politico magazine called. It's like the headline is "The Ideas Made It, But I Didn't," and it's this big interview with Pat Buchanan where they talk about how it's it's almost as if Trump just lifted his campaign strategy. I mean, he used he used the ter- terms like "America First. You know, and, and they they both regarded um, trade agreements as these vehicles for undermining American workers. And they both regarded alliances as these pointless drain on resources. And but I, I will I will say it's for somebody who doesn't seem to have. I mean, Trump would do some pretty aggressive things on the world stage. You know, he talked about how his button was bigger than Kim's. He uh, assassinated Soleimani. 
you know, he was he wasn't exactly a crusader like the neocons were. I mean, he he did start his presidency by saying we need to we need a period of retrenchment. We need to get out of these forever wars and all this stuff. And I've and one feature of fascism historically has been its aggression beyond its own borders. I mean, fascism has always been a very aggressive uh, ideology, and and Trump has always seemed to want to retreat to fortress America all the time. And I know that there are inconsistencies with that. Again, I'm not, and he increased the military budget dramatically. And I think there was a resolution to end the war in Yemen, which he vetoed. So his record of being a war ender isn't nearly as good as he would have you believe. But I, I just think the word itself is, is still something that I struggle to, because I feel like you can capture so much of what was bad about this phenomenon um, without it. I, I just... I and I get that we need a powerful word to describe what happened in 2020 and and uh you know all the time leading up to the election and after the election. It was interesting to me when people were so I mean January 6th was such a shock to the system and it was such a humiliating moment for the for the United States around the world but the the stuff leading up to it at the debates where he was just he just refused a, a moderator would say Will you respect the results of this election? You say no. I, I remember thinking like we shouldn't even agree to have debates anymore. Then, if you if you're not operating and you're you're not you're participating in a democratic system, and you're on the debate stage trying to woo voters, but why why bother why bother if you won't accept the results of the election? You know, it was almost like we needed to like coax that out of him and just. I, I feel like the moderator should have said no. Actually, we're not going to go on with this debate until you say that you'll accept the results of the election. We're just going to end it. We're going to end the fucking debate. And that that was the moment that. I, you know, it's, I was so horrified. And uh, yeah, so basically, I'm more sympathetic to the idea. I still have my reservations about it. I still think that him on a personal level, he's just, I don't think he's ideological enough to be a, a fascist. But anyway, that's, uh, I, I'm still reasoning through it. And you make a good case, Daniel. And I just don't, uh, I don't know. I don't know where I land on the semantics of it. <laughs> and fascism also is a really... That's the, I mean, it's kind of the same argument with um <clears throat> jihadism you know uh you know how much does this have in common with classic european fascism and mm-hmm. you know can, can we really apply this word or is this word you know just um historically contained to a certain period and a certain movement um but i, I mean I, I would say that maybe and i would probably agree with you that trump isn't particularly ideological himself um so on a, on, a, on a really technical level, maybe he isn't a fascist, except in the sense that his whole appeal is fascist. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, that's actually that's, that's a good distinction. I was thinking of a way to sort of make that point, and I think that's a concise way of putting it. Because I was thinking like maybe effectively fascist, or sort of like um, like the consequences turn out to be sort of fascistic or. I don't know. The, the actual definition of the word is, is, is not easy to contain, especially not now. It is used with fairly remarkable frequency, and it has been for so long. It, it's one of those where I am kind of afraid of it losing its force in the same way that a word like racist has lost some of its force no, in recent years. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, it goes back to, goes back to Orwell, you know, fascist is a term you use for somebody oh right exactly exactly i'm sure i've cited that line in a couple of my articles where i like wring my hands over this issue i I cited a essay by umberto echo sure i'm butchering that sorry but he basically talks about how fascism was manifesting itself after world war ii and he's just like this he's this is this is a loose concept there are many forms of fascism and he like he kind of outlines them and i 
I came away from his essay being sort of convinced that it's it's one of those terms that can apply to author a generic authoritarianism so effectively, um, but that can be repurposed so effectively that I, I feel like we, I don't know, we need to have like a, a summit on the use of the word fascism and decide what it actually means, because it means very different things to very different people. I mean, I guarantee you, there are probably people who go around saying Dick Cheney's a fascist. Like, it, it's just, I guarantee it. Probably a lot of, I would, I would bet you a fair number of people on the sort of anti-imperialist left would regard like Bush as a fascist, you know, and that's obviously ludicrous, but it's just, I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, I, it's a word that does deserve to be used properly. He did, he did, uh, I had this debate with this guy. To, to, to use it to describe Trump or Trumpism um, up until quite recently, you know, I used to be very... Um, you know, just uh, you know, he he's not a fascist. He's just a greedy, cynical opportunist. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and talk about recently, I would have been hesitant to use that word to describe him precisely because it's such an overused word and often really stupidly used word, just like racism or racist. Yeah, well, yeah, it's. I guess we don't want to get much more wrapped around the axle of fascism than we already are, but yeah, it's one that I, I'll be puzzling through it for a while. And I don't know. I mean, he sure has, he sure has like done all he can to make my original arguments <laughs> age poorly. You know, these, these were like pre 2020 election arguments, uh, but yeah, I understand he was doing things then that were truly horrifying too. So yeah. So, sorry. You were saying that you were having a debate with, uh, with somebody. Okay. Oh, just somebody in a, a magazine I wrote for us. This was several years ago. And yeah, we had this exact debate over whether or not he's a fascist. And this guy was just so convinced that I was just blind that I just couldn't see what was right in front of my face. And I was like, no, you're just an opportunist. You're using this word because it, it suits your political purposes. And I would say that I was probably, he, he was probably more right in that debate than I was. I mean, I just, you know, because he did kind of give you every reason to believe that something like what happened in 2020 was in the offing. And then it just happened. And so, uh, yeah, I think, I think, and you know, what would we, what would he have done? What if he had, what if he had overturned the election? I mean, what if you got the state legislatures together and they were able to to do this? Like it's, we would be living in a very strange world and it's, it's, it was, it was sort of a joke of an effort in many ways. The lawsuits all got thrown out, you know, Mike Pence didn't capitulate, uh, but it, it's not inconceivable that we could be living in a very different world. And had you been able to overthrow an American election, yeah, it, we, I wouldn't, this wouldn't be the same country, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, and again, <clears throat> it's perhaps slightly facile, but, uh, but the beer all punch was kind of a joke. Farce. <laughs> <Fair laughs> um, but anyway, to, to move on from the semantics of fascism, uh, and I've said this before, but time is time is getting away from us. Um, it is getting late. I do just have a couple of final uh, questions. Um, first of all, uh, one of the chapters in the book is about the idea of America. Uh, so, and we've kind of uh, discussed this a little bit already. But what 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 is what, what what did America mean to to Hitchens? Um, that's yeah. The, the last chapter is actually just called America, and it's about his liberalism. And I said I think it's a fitting and for for a man who is so wedded to irony, 
I, I do think it's kind of a fitting epitaph for him, but he spent so much of his career, you know, eviscerating American foreign policy and writing as a sort of like permanent gadfly in Washington, D.C. about how this is the over, this is like the sort of crusading superpower and and this is imperialism right in front of us. And, you know, he see, that was just such a big part of his career. And then he just ended up having a much more sympathetic view of the United States role in the world. And I think after the Cold War, he just, not only did he see the fact that despite the United States horrific um, crimes during the Cold War, uh, the democratic project and honestly, the capitalistic project were essentially right. And the Soviet Union was essentially wrong and far more suffering um, was wrought by communism than whatever you want, however you want to describe our system than the liberal democratic world or what have you. Um, he's, he could see that pretty clearly. And then very shortly after the Cold War ended, he realized that American power could prevent a genocide in the heart of Europe, and he thought it should happen. And that, that was a view that informed his political positions from there on out. And on a more fundamental level, I just think the United States, Jefferson's last letter, he might have written one other, but I think what's generally credited as his last letter, he, he talked about how um, the rest of the world would, would eventually come around to some form of self-government. And he, it, it was one of his most beautiful letters. And it just very succinctly stated that he, he was a, a universalist on this point, even though he did things in his life that didn't suggest he was a universalist at all. Um, he did think that the system that, that he created, uh, helped to create, was, was something that, that the, whole, the whole world would eventually come around to. And I just think Hitchens has that, that same view. I mean, he, 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 might, he might picture more relapses and he might... Um, because like I said, he did have a tragic view of history. But I think Hitchens, if you asked him, do you think that eventually you'll have a flourishing of democracy in the Middle East? Uh, he would say, yes, I think eventually you will see that. And he didn't live to see the collapse of the Arab Spring. Um, but he even expressed deep reservations early on. I mean, he described Egypt as a, an army with a state rather than a state with an army, which is what people used to say about Prussia. And so he, he definitely saw that these institutions would take time to build, but he just recognized that there was an instinctive human yearning for, for freedom and some measure of self-government. And the United States is the most powerful beacon of that idea, and it remains so today. And I just think that that was, his, that was essentially his final argument. And yeah, I, I just think it's fitting that he spent so, so much time criticizing the United States and eventually came to this uh, realization or this understanding, and then he became an American citizen which was actually an expression of his internationalism and not an expression of any sort of nationalistic or nativistic impulse. Mm. And I think that's uh, it's kind of only become more true now. And that's something that's <clears throat> really struck me, at least um, with the crisis in Ukraine, um, is, you know, ha- how much the EU and Europe does and, however much NATO does, you know, is ultimately and fundamentally the US, which is the guarantor of uh, the anti-Putin fight, you know, without the US, it just, it just, it wouldn't happen. It would, it would, Ukraine would have been abolished in a matter of days. 
the U.S. has certainly provided the lion's share of the military support. Mm. Um, I will say that it's worth noting that Poland, for example, which is a country I would have listed alongside Hungary as the sort of emerging authoritarian right-wing <laughs> uh, government, they, they've accepted many of their uh, international responsibilities regarding Ukraine, and they've accepted a lot of refugees. Mm. And they've, they've also not taken the Orban position. And this has actually created a rift between law and justice in Poland and, and, mm. and the Hungarian government. So I, I just, you know, other European countries definitely deserve their due regarding Ukraine. I mean, just seeing Germany shake decades of neutrality. Besides, Germany was actually involved in Kosovo. Um, but, and really, like, really recommit to European security and German security. I mean, a lot of people will say that's, that it's too little too late, or this is like a sign that Germany, which is already this economic, you know, behemoth in Europe, is just going to cause problems. That's probably what the John Mearsheimers of the world think. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, I do agree that the United States, even to this day, it, it's the most effective counterweight against both Russia and China. Everybody knows it. Um, I mean, this, this, the United States has huge bases in Japan and South Korea. And I think that region is safer and more secure for the fact that the United States has those bases there. I mean, mm. there's a reason why Japan didn't develop nuclear weapons. Certainly could. They could do it in, in a heartbeat. Yet they don't have them. I mean, also for historical reasons, which are pretty obvious. Mm. And that's another pretty remarkable irony of history, considering what we did to the Japanese. Mm. And it's just, yeah, anyway, um, I think I think he he had a fundamental realization about the United States. And I do think many on the left who are just, God, they just committed to the idea that the United States is this rapacious, hegemonic uh, superpower that just wants to dominate the world. I'm sorry, at this, at this stage, it's bullshit. It's a bullshit argument. I mean, the, the aggressive state right now, it's Russia, which invaded Ukraine. You know, if you can't step back and see that for what it is, then you have just lost the plot completely. And I just, you just know, you know, that Hitchens wouldn't have, he wouldn't have fudged it. He wouldn't have obfuscated with Russian troops rolling into Ukraine. I mean, come on. You only have to have a passing familiarity with his work. There's, there's one, uh, there's one great imperialist uh, project in the world, and that right now is Russian imperialism. And there's one great genocidal project in the world, and that is Chinese uh, genocide against the Uyghurs. Um, and these, I think, are probably two of the most pressing issues in the world. And unfortunately, the Uyghur issue has 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 long been under the radar. And yeah, right. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh... There, there are people who want us no, to divert not our eyes. Notwithstanding, and I have, I have spoken with such people, um, leftists who would, who would dismiss uh, concerns about the Chinese actions in, uh, in Xinjiang. You know that this is, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's just the same as Guantanamo, really. <laughs> oh God, who are you hanging out with? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not hanging out with them. I can assure you. Uh, but but I have known them. I have known such people. Yeah, I think I've I think I've met one or two myself. So I would say again. I mean, again, there's uh, there's a lot there that I would like to pick up on. I mean, I, as you said about Hitchens and the Arab Spring, you know, he he kind of died in the uh, you know the first uh, um, flushes of of that uh, revolutionary moment. Um, but even so, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, you know, 
kind of naive about it. You know, he he you know in his introduction to his last essay collection, arguably he he talks about um, you know waves will recede and mm. the plains will turn brown and dusty again, but the esprit of Tahrir uh, will live on, which to me was uh, seems uh, seems. But he knew that this might not be, you know, some sort of glorious new dawn and that democracy was going to be ushered into all of these despotisms. But there was a certain spirit there that would continue despite short-term disappointments. I'm I'm glad you put it that way because I have mentioned his tragic view of history a bunch. And actually, I, I hope that's not a misrepresentation because he did have certain elements of optimism. And in Letters to a Young Contrarian, this just comes up over and over again. And one of my favorite uh, passages in that book um, concerns like the next stage of the worldwide struggle. And he's sort of talking to leftists, he's talking to young people, but presumably maybe some, some leftists who missed out on the revolutions that he was a part of. People who think that today, you know, the great causes uh, seem to be pretty underwhelming uh, compared to, you know, like the revolutionary fervor in 1968. And he just says, and the next step is clear, like create a global system of justice where, you know, every everybody's rights are to the extent possible respected. And, you know, we're able to travel freely and communicate. And we have a sense of solidarity with other human beings just based on the fact that they're human. Um, that's a very, very sloppy paraphrase. But it's, it's, it's and he's, he says that this won't be in the least a moderate undertaking, as in you, you don't supporting the eu like i mentioned at the beginning of the conversation or or saying that the liberal democracies shouldn't allow a dictatorship to invade and abolish the existence of a neighboring country these are actually radical positions by the standards of history saying that democracies should get together just to prevent aggression you know not because they want territory for themselves not because they want a market to trade with but just to to make this point i mean the fact that the united states would be committed to defending Estonia if it was invaded by Putin. We'd be sending the troops to, to protect Estonia or the other Baltic republics. I mean, that's remarkable. This is a big development for the species. We didn't used to behave like this, you know, um, it, it just, and just to defend the principle of state sovereignty. But the basic point that Hitchens was trying to make for two decades after the Cold War was that you can be a radical and you can support this stuff. It's, uh, they're not mutually exclusive. And he, he did seem to have an optimistic uh, take. And he, he said, you know, it's, he, he's very suspicious of utopian thinking, somebody who emerged from his tradition. You know, he was in Cuba and these guys, his handlers were telling him, oh yeah, we're evolving the, the new man. He's over in this town called, you know, San Andreas or whatever it is, right over this mountain range. And like he, he's encountered the crazy version of leftism that wants to forge and sculpt humans into a new shape. He hates that. Clearly, he hated it by the end of his life. But that doesn't mean he doesn't think we like striving for truly progressive causes is impossible or pointless. And he, he clearly thought that real progress is possible. So yeah, despite his tragic view of history and his criticisms of Fukuyama, I do think that he, in the last his last few years, he really wrote some moving and optimistic things about the future of the world. And I hope people uh, can extract that from the book too. Yeah, no, I think that the to return to something I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the point that you mentioned from Letters to Young Contrarian, where this this uh, project of, of of human rights 
is not in the least moderate, however much it might seem to be so. Um, that, you know, I might seem to be slightly uh, herbivorous, but in fact, it's, it's got quite a lot of, quite a lot of punch to it. Um, it's, it's kind of echoed, even like before the Berlin Wall fell in his first essay collection, when he, when he states those principles outright and says that those, those ideals are the things that will always need to be defended um, that you know, these are the kind of eternally radical. Again, to use Greg Lukianoff's mm-hmm. term for uh, free speech. That's a great term. These are the ideas that we must stand by. And so, I think those were kind of the underlying principles of his ideas. And now I've just brought up the uh, <clears throat> the actual uh, page from his first essay collection, prepared for the worst. Oh, great. So I will read out the sentence uh, and save myself any more blundering uh, of his words. Um, and I think I mean, this paragraph, I think, probably act as the uh, key, you know, the key to, to pretty much all of his work. <clears throat> so he says, uh, religions and states and classes and tribes and nations do not have to work or argue for their adherents and subjects. They more or less inherit them. Against this unearned patrimony, there have always been speakers and writers who embody Einstein's injunction to remember your humanity and forget the rest. It would be immodest to claim membership in this fraternity slash sorority, but I hope not to have done anything to outrage it. Despite the idiotic sneer that such principles are fashionable, it is always the ideas of secularism, libertarianism, internationalism, and solidarity that stand in need of reaffirmation. That's uh, about as good of a conclusion as any, I think. Yes, no, I think that's uh, something that he could have written. In the 80s, just as much as uh, towards the end. Sure. Yeah, I think you're Um, absolutely right about that. Now, uh, I know we're both clamoring for the end, but a couple more questions. Just a couple more. (laughs) And this this one is uh, is a bit cheeky. Okay. Um, But also very complimentary. So there have been about, excluding yours, there have been about three books about Hitchens after his death. Uh, Richard Seymour's The Trial of Christopher Hitchens, Larry Taunton's The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, and Ben Burgess's book about, uh, oh gosh, I I mean, I can remember the book, I can't actually remember. It's just called Christopher Hitchens. Oh, okay. Uh, I think (laughs) what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. Yes. So... I don't know if you have any further comments on each of those books. And uh, regardless, why should people buy your book as opposed to these, as opposed to their books? Uh, well, um, <laughs> I feel like the scope of Burgess's is kind of limited. He focuses on these debates. He, um, and you know, I actually, as, as far as, because we've, we've had a lot of criticisms for the uh, sort of anti-imperialist left throughout this conversation. I mean, I, I count Burgess as a member of that group. 
And I think his affinity with Hitchens is nice. And I'm, I'm glad that he doesn't take this sort of like cynical view um, that like a Seymour takes. Uh, he doesn't call Hitchens a sadist or an imperialist or any of that nonsense. But I did write in my book, I was kind of struggling to see why Burgess wrote his book. Uh, it just it just seemed like why Hitchens matters to him is that he was pretty reasonable as an orthodox Marxist. And he was right about religion, but not that compelling. And then I just kind of, and he was very, very eloquent. But like, there are lots of eloquent people. There are lots of good Marxists to read. Um, you know, that's so I... I, I hope that's not too hard on Ben's book, but you know, I, and I do think Ben is is a good writer and he gets a lot right. But yeah, anyway, by mine, uh, that's the first thing. Uh, the faith of Christopher Hitchens was just kind of a travesty. It's where Larry Taunton just like claimed that Hitchens was teetering on the edge of a Christian conversion, or at the very least, he has a restless soul, and his soul was it was grasping for the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, it's just it's all very bizarre, and Hitchens actually explicitly warned against. Um, these weird deathbed conversion stories. I don't think Taunton necessarily said that Hitchens converted, but it was just this, it was a weird frame for a book. I'm kind of surprised that it was ever published. And a few of Hitchens' friends ably ripped it to shreds. I would cite David Frum's uh, essay in The Atlantic, which just absolutely uh, took Taunton to task. Um, I believe Kerchick wrote something about it too, but I know Kerchick wrote something, James Kerchick wrote something about um, Seymour's book, Unhitched the trial of Christopher Hitchens, which basically just argues that Hitchens has always been an imperialist and his evidence is extremely thin for that claim. And at one point he says, oh, you know, for example, Hitchens supported the, um, the British in the Falklands War, which just shows that he really wanted, uh, he wanted to support the flexing of British naval muscle and he, he wanted to support empire. But then, and then Seymour proceeds to list all of the reasons why that was a totally, like that intervention absolutely led to the outcomes that Hitchens thought it would, how it undermined uh, Galtieri, how it led to, eventually to the breaking of the military dictatorship, and how it just like, it led to the opening up of the country in general. So like, basically he just says Hitchens was an imperialist for supporting this war, although he was literally right about every reason he supported it uh, before the call. We were talking about Ian McEwen's uh, view of Hitchens' support for that war, and he just thinks it's part and parcel of his general anti-totalitarianism, which ran straight through Iraq. And that's what he says. And McEwen's right. Seymour's wrong. So of those three, uh, definitely, definitely you're going to want to pick up how Hitchens can save the left. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for presenting me uh, or presenting a question that, that can make me sound opportunistic and sort of <laughs> grudging, grudging toward the competition. Okay, last question. In a sentence, a short sentence, and then I shall conclude. Why, to go back to your thesis, why does Hitchens matter today? Because he was a genuine liberal, and unafraid to say so, at a time when liberalism isn't receiving the respect or the commitment, frankly, that it deserves. God, if somebody actually wrote that out, like as a transcript, it would be such an ugly sentence, but there you go. <laughs> he was a real liberal. <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> I'll finish off by uh, by greasing you up a little. I'll say that your book, For My Money, and again, I'm not I'm an uh, impartial observer, but I would say your book is the best book, the first good book really good book about Hitchens since his death. I think it's a properly, uh, yeah, I think it's a serious analysis of his thought. Um, 
and his writings. Uh, and I think that, uh, well, earlier, as I mentioned to you before the call, I was speaking to AC Grayling and he compared Hitchens to William Hazlitt, great uh, radical of the 18th, uh, 18th and 19th centuries. And one of the reasons that he said uh, that Hitchens and Hazlitt had this had something in common was they were both very serious about the world. <laughs> they thought the world mattered, that politics and words and ideas mattered. And I think this is a fine lesson to be learned. I think that's one of the reasons to add an answer to Matt's uh, answer is that's one of the reasons why Hitchens matters. Um, and I think to echo that, that Matt's book is probably the first book that's really serious about Hitchens. Um, I don't think any of the other books have been particularly serious or deep in the same way that Matt's has. So I would, uh, again, with the disclaimer that I'm not an impartial observer, that uh, that I, I harshly recommend Matt's book. And uh, that's all I have to say to finish on. So thank well, you very much, Matt, for taking the time. And thank you, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Um, unlike you, I can take a compliment. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, I wish I was cool enough to just casually mention that I was chatting with AC Grayling earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't reached that level yet, but hopefully someday. Well, that's a good place to end. So uh, thank you very much. And go buy Matt's book, which is coming out next month. Please do.